Paul's letter to Timothy, instructing him in how to address some of the issues that are going on in the church in Ephesus. Paul here in this passage in 1 Timothy 3 lays out his guidance for how the church is to be structured and how the church is to be led, and in particular, who the church is to be led by. Paul writes, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will we care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to see you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Let's pray for God's blessing on His Word. Heavenly Father, Your Word is un is not understandable without the illuminating of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, we ask that you would send your Spirit to lighten and enlighten our hearts and our minds to the truth of your Word. Your Word, which is truth, that we may be conformed by it and conformed to it through the working of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The greatest detriment to the cause of any organization is the character failure of one of its leaders. And as much as our political candidates and the various moral uh, things that they engage with and immoral things that they engage in are known for rather publicly, one of the things that happens is that when anyone's running for office or moving into a higher or more prominent position is that there is an extensive vetting process that examines everything in their life. Because the higher up you go, the more a person's character is examined, life is examined, their family is put under the microscope, and there's a concern that a chink in the character of the leader would be exploited by their opponents, or that a chink in their character would undermine the cause for which the leader stands. It's true in other organizations, but it's especially true in the church, that what a leader is in What the leadership is in microcosm, the church becomes in macrocosm. What the leadership is on the small scale, individually, the church itself becomes on the large scale. If in a church the leaders love Jesus, find joy in Jesus, and are humbled by the gospel, there results a church that loves Jesus, that there is joy in Jesus, and a church that is humble 
in the proclamation of the gospel. And conversely, if the leaders of the church are harsh, if they're arrogant, if they're judgmental or condemning and self-focused, very soon that church becomes harsh and arrogant and judgmental and and self-focused. So Paul gives these instructions, instructions that are rooted in his own love for the church, but more prominently rooted in God's love for the church. For the church itself, as much of it gets a bad rap today, the church is a noble institution. Look at the way that Paul characterizes the church in this passage. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but if I delay... I write these things that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, which is a pillar and a buttress of truth. Consider these terms. The church is the household of God. It is the family of God. Is there, is there anything more precious in your life than family? Family where you've bound, been bound together, where you've been bound together by blood. And the church is the household of God, the family of God, which has also been bound together by blood, bound together by the blood of Jesus Christ, for you are not your own, for you are bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ that has bought you, redeemed you from sin and misery, and redeemed you into life, and adopted you into the household of God. The influence of American consumerism on the way that Christians relate to the church is remarkable and it is absolutely insidious. How much it affects so much of what we do in our view and how we interact and relate with the church. Recently, I was having lunch with Mark Dooley, who's a pastor of Leonardtown Baptist, a godly brother. I appreciate him. I appreciate his ministry. I'm thankful for him. And he gave me, he gave me permission to, to share this conversation. And after we were talking, he suddenly says, he says, there, the Christians in Southern Maryland are spiritually sick. He says there is a spiritual illness and a spiritual sickness amidst the Christians in this place. Because the Christians in southern Maryland hop churches and abandon churches more quickly and more readily than any community that I have ever served in my life. He says there is a spiritual sickness among Christians that is pervasive throughout this community. In contrast to that practice present within our community, Paul says that the church here is the household of God. It is the family of God. And consider what that means. Every one of us, whether here or other places, every one of us knows people who have quit the church, people who have left the church, who have switched churches. Imagine if the reasons for doing so were reasons that people gave in your family or in your household. Imagine if someone said, you know what, we're not coming to Thanksgiving dinner this year because the neighbor across the street has a better Thanksgiving meal than what's being served over here. Imagine if they said, we're not going on the family vacation because we have a tension tension with with the other member of our family. I've got a tension with our brother. Therefore, I'm not going on the family vacation. What would be the response? The response would be, what are you talking about? You're a family. You don't do that. You don't treat family like that. You don't do that to your family members. You love your family and you work through, your fam- work through things with your family because for that exact reason, because they are your family. And Scripture says, you are the church is the household of God. It is the family of God and we are bound together by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
should be reflected in the way that we regard and treat one another and the commitment that we have. The second image that he goes on to is he said not only is the church the household of God, the church itself, it is the church of the living God. The word for church means assembly. Almost always in the New Testament, when it refers to the church, it is referring to the individual local church. A, time, a couple times it's used to mean the church at large, but almost always it is referring to the local church. Because the church is the assembly of the living God. It is the place where every aspect of our common life is enriched by God's presence in and among us and through us. When we gather together on Sundays for worship, we bow before the living God. Through the reading and the exposition of the Word of God, God's voice addresses us and speaks to us. When we commune at the table through breaking of bread, God makes Himself known and there is an experience of His grace and presence through the unity of the body that does not and cannot occur individually. In our fellowship, we love each other as Christ has loved us. In our witness, it becomes more effective together than individually. One of the, a great encouragement to me is the story of how several of you came to Cornerstone, which there are many of you here, and the reason why you're at Cornerstone is because you saw members of this church in your soccer teams or in your workplace And you saw them, and you knew that they went to this church, and you said, I want to go where they go because there's something different about them. And when you have two Christians who that's evident in, that is a powerful witness as the Spirit of God testifies to God's grace through the body of Christ, through the assembly of the living God where God is experienced and where He is known, so much so that other people can Come in and say, wow, God is really among you. Third description of the church is that it is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. The church in Ephesus had a remarkable example of this phrase that would have been prominent in their mind. And that was the Temple of Artemis, which was central in Ephesus. Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was surrounded by a hundred pillars that supported this massive roof. Each of those pillars was over 60 feet tall. That would be more than twice as tall as this room in terms of imagining the scope of this thing. And those pillars held up this massive marble roof that was this shining beacon into the world and into the surrounding communities. And the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. It is the church that holds the truth high so that it may be seen by and admired by the world as a buttress of truth. It means that the church does not collapse under the weight of false teachings, under different trends and views that people develop over time, but it is the church as a buttress of truth that upholds the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. The church is a pillar of the truth, that it holds the truth high and does not, um, does not hold back, but rather it proclaims the truth that it might be held forth and seen. It might be a little bit surprising to consider that Paul refers to the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth. I think if you ask most of us prior to reading this passage, we would say, no, the truth is the pillar and buttress of the church. 
The truth is what upholds the church. It is not the church that upholds the truth. Well, which one is he saying here? And which is true? I believe they're both true. Is that the truth, which is the word of God, is the foundation of the church. It is the pillar and the buttress of the church. It is the truth of the word of God that gives the church life and gives it health. The church rests on the truth. It depends on the truth. It cannot exist without the truth. At the same time, the church itself is the foundation of truth in its mission into the world. Is that the church serves the truth. The church holds the truth out and makes it known to the world and makes it known around the globe. And so the church and the truth are each dependent upon one another. The church depends on the truth for its existence, and the truth depends on the church for its defense and proclamation. It's really an idea that is completely contrary to people's view of the church today and people's view of truth today. For what's commonly viewed, what's taught in schools, if you ever watch a religious program on the History Channel or on any network about the Bible, the view that is taught is that the Bible is a collection of people's opinions. It is their individual reflections on their experience with the divine in their own context. And people look at the Bible today and they say, well, you know what, it was easier back then for people to believe that the Bible was inspired by God because people back then were more mystical and were more inclined to believe the truth than people are today. Well, I would warn you to not be guilty of chronological snobbery. Presuming yourself credit today that people back then, that you don't afford to people back then. Because the truth of God has never been readily accepted. And the truth and what is true is not determined by what people think. And truth is also not determined by how many people think it. Truth is determined by the truth itself. Either it is true or it is not true. And if God has not spoken, your opinion is as good as mine. And if God has not spoken, your opinion and my opinion are just as good as Paul's opinion or Luke's opinion or any of the other writers of the Bible because it's just their opinion. But if God has spoken, and if he has spoken through people in the writing of the Bible, and if that is the source of truth because it is God speaking, then we need to conform ourselves to the truth of God's word and proclaim it because it is the way that God has spoken and continues to speak through people. I understand that some of you might have questions about how can you trust the Bible and know whether or not the Bible really is true. I believe there are very reasonable answers to that, and I'd love to walk through those with you, and as will many people in our church. But truth is determined by the truth not by people's opinion of it. And the church is called to be a pillar and buttress of the truth that it would be proclaimed into the world. Believe these descriptions, the church being the household of God, the assembly of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth, those perspectives, I think, help shape how we should regard the church. I think it calls us to have a higher regard for the church than what can I get out of this place. Of course, Christians would never say that. 
we would never say that our relationship to the church is this American consumer mindset of what can I get out of the what can I get out of this place? We would all we would all resist that. But we would phrase it in more spiritually acceptable terminology. We would say we would phrase it this way. Well, I don't know if that's a place that I can really grow. I'm looking for a place that's good for me and good for my family. I'm looking for a place that, 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 I'll, that I'll be able to, that I'll be really be able to grow and be really be able to be fed. Is growth and being fed important? Absolutely. But do you hear the hell's, how is that much different than saying, I'm looking for a church to see what I can get, the place that I can get the most out of it. I want a place where I can grow, where I can be fed, where my family's needs are, where my family's needs are met. Not much different than the way that people treat restaurants, sports teams, or anything else. I want to go to the place that I get the most, I personally get the most out of it. That shouldn't be our fundamental posture when we come to the church. Paul calls it that it is the pillar and buttress of truth. The church is the household and family of God. It is, this is the place, the assembly where the living God dwells. What does that mean? It means that my individual purpose in my life should be drawn into God's purpose in this world, in particular, God's purpose through the one agency, the one institution that he has appointed to carry forth his purpose, the one place that truth is upheld, which is the church of Jesus Christ. And we're called to regard the church, have a higher regard for it, to regard it, to esteem it, and to work for God's purposes through his church. Given these descriptions of being the family of God, the household of God, the assembly of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth, the church is a noble institution. And therefore, leadership in the church is a noble task. Paul is specifically writing to Timothy to give instructions on how they are to behave in the household of God. This is how the church is supposed to be structured. And so we're going to dive into the structure that Paul lays out here for the church and what's required. Well, what, are the, what is the leadership of the church? What are the roles that are supposed to be there? There are two, those who are called to be servant leaders and those who are called to be leading servants. He describes them this way. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That word for overseer in the New Testament is used synonymously and interchangeably with the word for elder and the word for pastor. They're called to be servant leaders. Their duty is to proclaim the truth, to guard and defend the truth, to shepherd the flock, and to nurture, and to nurture the church of Jesus Christ. The other office for church leadership is those of deacons who are called to be the leading servants within the church. The word literally means servants or waiters. Those who are called to serve, especially so that the elders are free for the proclamation of the ministry of the word. Serve in particularly tangible ways, making the gospel known in deed in the church and in the community. At Cornerstone, we have three elders, two pastors, and seven deacons. For our elders, what this means tangibly is we have different uh, shepherding groups. Maybe you know that, maybe you don't. Each of our elders has 72 households under their care. For each of our three elders, they each have 72 households, 72 family units. My hope, I think my idea would be that we would be down to like a ratio of 1 to 10, one elder for every 10 households or so. If that were to occur, that would mean we would have 22 active elders in our church, and we currently have three. If we were dropping the ratio to 1 to 15, that would mean that right now we need 12 more elders to be serving 
uh, to have a ratio of 1 to, 1 to 15. And so please pray for that. Not only pray for that, but as we go into what I'm about to say, these who should be leaders in the church, it is your job as a congregation to see who are men who exemplify these characteristics and to nominate them to serve in this role. Because this is the way that God raises up leaders in the church. He tells us that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That there should be an inward sense of God's movement and calling in them to serve as an elder within the church. Something that God is a desire that God gives to them is saying, I would really love to be used by the Lord to shepherd his flock and to, be, and to proclaim the, the truth of the gospel. So there is an inward aspect to it. But at the same time, there is also an outward aspect, that there is a recognition by other people that God has set these people apart, that God has set them apart and is raising them up to serve in this position. That is why Paul lists out a variety of observable characteristics. It's not just simply someone saying, oh, well, I want to serve. And people are like, well, if he wants to serve, we just better let him serve because he wants to serve and not many people want to serve, so that's the person that we should stick in here. No, he says, no, there's a desire that needs to be there, but there need to be observable characteristics that you as members of this church should be looking for to be evident in the lives of other people. Observable characteristics of the gospel and the truths of the gospel being manifest in their lives. Other passages of Scripture emphasize the outward recognition by other people of those that God is calling. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles say to the congregation, Choose from among yourselves men of good repute who are full of the Holy Spirit. Look and see who is God working in this way. Similarly, he gives a similar charge to Titus um, when he says that he has placed them there to appoint elders in every town. So there is this inward sense of desiring to be served the Lord in this way. There is an, an outward call that is outside of the person that other people recognize it. And then there is also what is necessary is testing. We are not a democracy. We're actually a representative form of government. But it's not just a matter of the church votes in whoever they want to vote in. There needs to be testing, and then it says, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves, if they prove themselves to be blameless. Who are they to be tested by? Presumably by the elders. At Cornerstone, this process usually takes at least over a year of testing and people proving themselves before the elders recommend them to the congregation. Why is this so important? Because Christian leadership is not about fulfilling a bunch of tasks or about a job description. Rather, it is a character description is a character description of are these traits of the gospel being manifested in a person's, person's life. And that's the framework that Scripture gives and shows how God raises these people up. He then gives, as a character description, some very specific requirements of their character, of what spiritual maturity looks like and what you should be looking for as a church members. Before we dive into these, let me just say briefly what spiritual maturity is not and what Christian character is not. It is not having a lot of Bible knowledge. You just say, oh, that person, they know so much Bible, they know so many Bible verses, they're so well-versed in theology. There is a big difference between knowing God's Word and doing God's Word. And there is a big difference between reciting the fruits of the Spirit and manifesting and producing the fruits of the Spirit in a person's life. Similarly, it is not high commitment. Certainly, commitment is necessary. 
and an attribute of a spiritually mature life, but someone being commitment committed does not necessarily mean that they are spiritually mature. It could just be quite convenient for them to be committed to the church because it allows them to hide from their other things that God is calling them to do in their life. Similarly, it is not longevity. It's not how long a person has been a Christian. Certainly, time is necessary, but time is not an indicator of spiritual maturity. There are too many Christians who have been Christians for a long time, and their spiritual growth has plateaued shortly after becoming a Christian. And it'll be wrong to say, well, you know what, those people, they've been here for a while. I think it's their turn to serve. Longevity is not an indicator of spiritual maturity. It's not age. Older men should not automatically become elders, and younger men should not automatically be disqualified. Similarly, it is not career success. How easy it would be to see someone who's really successful in the career, has a, holds a really prominent position on base, has done great things with their career, and everyone holds that person up as a, as a role model. And easy to say, wow, wouldn't it be great if he were an elder or if he were a deacon in our church? Wouldn't that be great to tell people that so-and-so is an elder and a leader in our church? Maybe. It might be disastrous also. Success in the world is not the indicator, nor is likability, not just simply the person that everyone likes. It amazes me every political election cycle that I talk to, I think, rational people who, when it comes to voting on a candidate, will say, well, I just, I just really like that person. I just really like them. Like, really? Do you know what they stand for? Yeah, but I, I just like them. What an awful reason to vote somebody in. It's true in our politics. It's also true within the church. So Scripture lays out areas that the gospel should be manifested and demonstrated in a person's life. Lots of different things listed out here. I think we can group them into five areas. First area would be in regard to their personal integrity. It says that they are to be self-controlled and mature. Above reproach. That means that they have a blameless reputation. That they have observable conduct that is... Above reproach, they are sober-minded would be the next thing. Sober-minded means they're clear-headed, level-headed, they're discerning, self-controlled, listed as one of the fruits of the spirits, that they are sensible, that they are disciplined, they're not hot-headed, not short-tempered, that they're able to manage themselves, manage their words, and manage their emotions through the working of the Holy Spirit present within them. They're not a drunkard, verse 8 would say, not addicted to much wine. Why? Because instead of pursuing substances, they're people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and guided by the Spirit of God. That they're not quarrelsome. They're not trying to pick a fight. Verse 8 would say that they're not double-tongued. They don't have devious speech. That they're not a lover of money. Instead, that they're generous. And they see that the blessings that God has given to them, He has given to them so that they can bless other people. Not a lover of money. That to be humble must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Titus would specifically say he must not be arrogant. That the gospel works in a person's life, and when the gospel is at work, it produces humility. It's a characteristic of their integrity. Second area would be the area of their family. It says, the husband of one wife 
that he must be entirely true and faithful to his one and only wife. Literally, the phrase here is that he is a one-woman man, not only outwardly, but also in his character, in his heart, and in his conduct. Someone who manages his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And when it says this, we cannot control anyone's hearts. Parents cannot control the hearts and belief of their children, which I believe is why it says that he's evaluated on the basis of his management of the household in this verse. And the logic follows. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will we care for God's church, which is the household of God? It also adds in in terms of relationship to the family, that their wives must likewise be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Fast way to destroy a church is through gossiping, volatile, fickle wives of leaders. Incredibly detrimental. But that's a family, part of the family requirements. Third area, in their relationships with other people, they are to be respectable. This is dignified, we we'll say later verse, that being a respectable person, worthy of respect, is the outward recognition of someone who is self-controlled. That they are hospitable, that they invite other people into their lives, Christians and non-Christians, that they live openly and invite people into their lives. That they're not violent, but gentle. They don't pick fights, they don't seek to win and seek to domineer, but rather seek to nurture and develop. In regards to non-Christians and their relationship with outsiders, must be well thought of so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Christians are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Non-Christians are watching. It is a disgrace to the name of Christ if there are Christians who play church on Sunday and they're disrespectable in every other area of their life. How much more so for the leaders of the church to play church on Sunday and to put on the front of godliness, but they are despicable in their conduct, their jokes, and other areas when they're not at church. The devil is always seeking to discredit the gospel and its messengers. In regards to their faith, the fifth area. So if you go integrity, family, relationships, relationships with outsiders, and in regards to their faith... They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, that they hold to the teaching of Scripture, that they understand them, and that they believe that, and they believe it, and they hold to the faith with a clear conscience, not under coercion, not in order to, um, because it's socially advantageous to be a Christian, but they do it because they genuinely believe it to be true. Of everything that I've said here, those are the requirements of both elders and deacons. In the listing, there is only one distinguishing characteristic of elders, vice deacons. And the one distinguishing characteristic is that they are able to teach as a job description. Titus says that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, give instruction in sound doctrine, which is how Scripture holds together, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The church has no option to ordain and to put in leadership those whom God has not called, whom God has not gifted, and whom God has not raised up to serve in that capacity. This instruction here also in terms of being able to teach, um, giving instruction, sound doctrine also relates to last week's message about who should be teaching in the church and what the requirements are for those who teach. With the exception of teaching, 
every character trait listed there should be manifest in the life of every Christian. And if you've been a Christian for some time, and these character traits are not evident in your life, why not? I mean, seriously, why not? And if your excuse to not serving the Lord is that you fall short in some aspect of some character requirement that you hear these things and you say, well, no, no, I fall way, way, way short in this, why on earth do you tolerate this within yourself? Why do you tolerate it? The, the God Almighty is on a mission to draw people of every tongue, tribe, and nation to himself. God Almighty would use you, but you're more interested in, in coddling some pet sin in your life that you don't want to deal with. It's kind of pathetic, frankly. And if you're not willing to address challenges in your own faith, challenges in your own character, if you're not willing to address challenges in your marriage and challenges in your family, why not? I mean, you're only hurting yourself. You're hurting your marriage. You're hurting your family. You're hurting the church at large because your gifts aren't being used. You're, you're hurting the, the, the cause of Christ. Why not? Why would you tolerate that? And if there's areas here that you look at and you say, you know, that, that, is, a, that is an issue for me, that is a struggle for me, and you need help and counsel, that's what the church is here for. It is to help counsel and to coach and disciple people to live in response to God's grace. If there are significant issues that you have in your marriage, and your family, don't tolerate them. Tom and Mary Thompson, biblical counselors, come down on Fridays. They do a, a fantastic job. But there is, too much, there is too much at stake. There is too high of a calling, a noble calling that God has given to the church to compromise and to tolerate on these things. At the same time, we know that the Christian life is about living life in response to God's grace. And you look at this list, and of course, such a list is daunting to anyone we would regard as the best and most gifted Christian. Absolutely. Absolutely, it's a daunting list to be examined by those standards. And those that we would hold up as the best models of this are keenly aware of how far short that they fall. They're deeply aware, like the Apostle Paul, when Paul says, this saying is, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And the way that God works is that as he produces greater holiness in a person's life, outwardly observable, he at the same time creates a greater awareness of their own individual sinfulness. And the Christian life... And the Christian message is not about being good enough for God. No one is. We have this foundational belief that it's necessary to be a Christian is to recognize that you're a sinner and you can't save yourself, that you do things and say things and think things that you, that you should not do and say. And we freely recognize and confess that because of the depth of my sinfulness, all that I am, all that I have, all that I can do is only a gift of God's grace and is only evidence of the Holy Spirit working in me and working through me. And so, we rejoice in God's forgiveness of us, of our, of our shortcomings, our shortcomings and our sin, 
through Jesus Christ. We rejoice in his forgiveness. We rejoice that through faith in Christ, the beauty of Christ, his holiness and his righteousness is credited to us and bestowed upon us. And at the same time, when it comes to leadership in the church, it is no good saying, but the church believes in forgiveness, therefore it doesn't matter if leaders don't live up to these standards. Because that just gives us a chance to show that what we mean by forgiveness and get mean by new starts. And yes, certainly there needs to be restoration for Christian leaders who fall and who fail. But the point of God's grace working within us, the point of God's forgiveness is not so that we can relax and go on sinning because it's going to be all right somehow. Rather, the point of God's grace and His forgiving love is to transform us, is to take us out of the dominion of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of light, that we would no longer live according to the ways of the world, but that we would live as members of the household of God, that the work of God's grace is not just something that we assent to because of our failures, but the work of God's grace is something that we testify to because it is manifest in our life and demonstrated and experienced in our lives. And for Christian leaders, God's forgiving love should be evidence. The transformation of His grace should be evident that there is a new type of humanity, that there is a new way to live, that flows from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it is evident in the way that those people live their lives that you can see it. You can see the gospel at work. You can see their love for God and their love for Jesus and how that overflows into their relationships with other people. Therefore, it's, it's absolutely vital that people who hold leadership's positions model the gospel message, that it is manifested in their life, that there shows that there is a different way to be human, a different way to, be, to live and to live in response to the grace of God. And as the church and as the watching world sees that in the leaders and in the members of the church, they will look at them and they will say, there is something different about those people. There is a love that flows from those people. There is a joy that springs forth from those people because of the indwelling work of Jesus in their life. And the message for the rest of the world is the work that you see God doing in them, the restoration that you have seen God work in their lives and in their families, the way that you have seen God turn arrogant, prideful, sinful people into servants of God Almighty, the way that you see that transformation in their life, that is available to begin in your life too through faith in Jesus Christ. He is an awesome Savior, and we want you to know Him. And He is one who transforms real sinners through real grace, through the working of the Holy Spirit who is alive and active. What do you do with this passage? I think a couple of quick, quick things. Number one, if you don't pray for the church, you should pray for the church. The church has, God, has God's appointment to be the household of faith, the family of God. It is the assembly of the living God. The church is the only institution that is appointed to be the pillar and buttress of truth. Pray for the church. Number two, pray for the leaders of the church, for the Holy Spirit to strengthen them and to make them fruitful and effective and to keep them focused on Christ. 
specifically for Cornerstone, pray that God would raise up elders, not just anybody, but men filled with the Holy Spirit, that Christ would be worshiped and the gospel would be proclaimed. Individually, as individual Christians, when you look at this listing of character requirements, individually we should walk away and be unrelenting in our growth and godliness, to not tolerate pet sins in our lives that we use as an excuse to not serve the Lord, to be unrelenting in our growth and godliness, to honor Him with a holy life. And above all, we are to give thanks for the transforming grace of God that takes people like the Apostle Paul, who calls himself the chief of sinners, and makes him the foremost missionary of the church, who takes people like you and people like me, who are sinners in needs of God's grace, and in mind-boggling ways turns us into servants of his gospel. Let us pray to that end. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the church. Thank you for the church, which is the bride of Christ. Thank you for the church that you have appointed and set apart to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And Lord, we long for the church to shine and for it to shine brightly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let us rise and continue to worship the Lord as we recognize the great things that he has done, the great things he is doing and the great things he has yet in store for us.